we get to deal with what uh, uh, Pastor David dealt with this morning, but we're going to look at the Gospel of John chapter 5, the story of the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. We're going to look, look at it uh, uh, later. First, we get to start with healing through intercession. And this is a story that came out in John 4, 46 through 54. And it's one that happens right before the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus has gone up to Cana. Now, Cana is where he performed the wedding. And while Jesus is in Cana, an official is uh, uh, comes to Jesus, and a, a, a Roman official, actually, a centurion. Here's what it says. The official says to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, this is a man from Capernaum, a, a Roman official from Capernaum. He says, come down. If you're looking at a map, that doesn't work in our vocabulary. Cana should be come over to Capernaum. But the Bible's not written by our vocabulary. It's written by the geography of its own day. And Cana is up in the hills. Capernaum is a seaside town. So you come down from Cana into Capernaum. In fact, I was able to find this picture. These are the ruins of Cana that you see there in the hills. Those stones are the ruins. That's called Kirbet Cana today, which is the hill of Cana. And Cana as a village existed. It is yet to be excavated there, but in that general area. If you're standing there, and that's why we say village, it would have been a few hundred people most likely. But if you're standing there, you can see off, I can kind of highlight it there. You see that? That's the Sea of Galilee. That's where Capernaum was. It's on that northern tip of that, which would be just off of our picture, the way the picture is. But it's not far. It's 15 miles. And so Jesus is in Cana, where he had performed the the miracle at the wedding. And the official hears Jesus is there. The official's son is ill. So the official comes to Jesus to seek healing for his son. And says, uh, 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 Sir, please come down before my child dies. Jesus says to the official, Go, your son will live. The man, this is not a, a, a Jew. The man believes Jesus, the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he goes on his way. As the man's going down, the man's servants meet him and says, your son's recovering. The official says, when did this happen? The servant said, the same moment. They gave him the time, yesterday at the seventh hour. And that was the same time that the man was talking to Jesus. And Jesus said, go. This man believed, all of his household believed. And it's the second miracle that John records. The first miracle having been the wedding at Cana. Now, that doesn't mean it's the second miracle Jesus did. John will record seven miracles. And and that's because John selected seven miracles. 
with the last miracle being the resurrection of Jesus and the start of a new creation. So that's a bunch of theology and John we're not getting into. I just don't want you to get bogged down and say, well, why is that the second miracle? It's the second miracle John chose. John's very deliberate in his choosing. So with that, that's the background story. Now, the contextual reading for this was basically the reading about a healing through intercession. It was not Jesus touching the young boy. It was not the young boy asking for healing. Jesus healed the young boy because the boy's father asked for healing. Now, these are are stories that, that... can be difficult for some people to understand. There are some people uh, I was visiting just right before we started with a marvelous lady here in our class who recent, just last week lost her son. And, and no parent should ever have to bury a child. It's just not the way of things. Should not be the way of things. And, and I, it reminded me of a conversation I had recently with someone who was very indignant and, I won't say offended, maybe upset, when someone made a comment about, hey, God made the weather today perfect for this event that I had. It was a God thing. And this person came to me and said, I'm very upset about that. And I said, why? This person said, because I lost my son to cancer. And God's taking care of the weather for the party, but he's not answering my prayers about my son. You know, it's an interesting thing. But it's very difficult for us to ever put ourselves in the shoes of God. Because we're not God. And, and we're not even remotely responsible for seeing that this entire planet exists with 7 billion people, all of whom are making their choices in their lives, and yet somehow in the midst of that, God will weave together His will culminating in His kingdom. And God does that. And we don't understand the ways of the Lord. But we have assurances that God's numbered the hairs on our head. He knows when a sparrow falls. And there is no good gift that any of us get that doesn't come from the Father. And He does care about the small things. But He also cares about the big things. And somehow in the midst of that, we're to live faithfully. So it's just an interesting thing because as I put the context scriptures together for us, I was constantly reminded, and it's especially evident in what we looked at this last week, that there are things that that we struggle with. And I didn't run from those struggles when I put these scriptures together. If you read along this week, I hope you found some of the struggles. Let's look at them together. Intercession means to seek God on behalf of another. It's something we do for our children when we pray for our children, when we pray for each other, when we seek God on behalf of someone else. And the official that came to Jesus wasn't the first to do it. 
And the, the son of that official was not God's first time to perform a, a, a touch of God, a miracle, because of the intercession of someone else. Wasn't the faith of the son that got the son healed. It was the intercession of the son's father. So with that, I put in first Abraham chapter 20, or Genesis 20 with Abraham. It's an interesting story. It's a story of Abraham and he's, he's much further south. In fact, he's even south of Jerusalem when this happens. In Gerar. And Abraham's in Gerar and Abraham's uh, dealing with a local chieftain. They call him a king. But he doesn't have a kingdom. He's got a, he's a chieftain. Okay? So a local chieftain. And Abraham's had some interactions with him before. We should not read Genesis chapter 20 and think it's the whole story. It's just snippets to give us a point. And so you, you've got this story, this snippets. And Abraham basically is worried about something with the chieftain. So Abraham introduces his wife, Sarah, as his sister. So the chieftain takes Sarah, and I'm sure Abraham's rationalizing. Abraham's thinking, well, she is my half-sister. You know, it wasn't technically a lie. But it was a misrepresentation. Poor Sarah. What, I mean... My wife would not put up with that. <laughs> Nor should she put up with that. And that is not a, a biblical recommendation that any man pawns out his wife out of concern for his own safety. We do not do that, men. We stand in the gap and we protect our women. You want her? You're coming through me. That's the way it should be. But poor Abraham, bless his heart. He struggled with that on more than one occasion. So the king, the chieftain, takes Sarah as a wife. And he's got a bunch of wives. He doesn't get around to touching her. But there are problems that happen in his home. All of his other women become barren and unable to bear children. And it occurs to Abimelech, Abimelech, Ahimelech, Abimelech, Ahimelech, I've heard it both ways. It occurs to, sorry, my brain short-circuited. Let's make sure we get this gentleman's name right. He was, after all, a chieftain. Abimelech, Avimelech in the Hebrew. I can do the Hebrew. So it occurs to Avimelech, whose name means my father's the king. So that means he's the prince chieftain. His father had been chieftain before him. He had been prince. So it occurs to him that there's a problem here. And he has a dream. And in the dream, God says, you've taken the wife of another. And Avimelech says, well, don't blame me. He said she was his sister. God says, well, you better give her back. And you better ask Abraham to intercede for you with me. Or the disease and the infirmities I've set upon your house won't go away. So Avimelech takes Sarah back and says, here, I don't want her. And would you please intercede for me? And Abraham does. And God brings healing. 
The next passage I gave you was Exodus 15, 22 through 27. It's one where the people are grumbling and mumbling and, and, and Moses intercedes on their behalf. But then I gave you another one for Moses' intercession that I, I, I like even more. It's, that's not, gee, that's really not probably politically correct. Say, I like this more than I like that in the Bible. But, you know, I do. And it's Numbers chapter 12. This is the one where Miriam and Aaron, the sister and brother of Moses, start to feel a bit uppity. They decide they're really upset with Moses because Moses has a Cushite wife, likely from Ethiopia, makes it an interracial marriage because she was likely black and he was likely at least brown. And so it's, it's, it's something that's got the family upset. And it's festered. As things in a family can, it's festered. And there's a psychological term for it when there's a problem here, but the, the tendrils of the problem, instead of addressing the problem, it starts being, what's it called? Dysfunctional. It's, 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 uh, it starts, uh, Going out into the periphery. You, you deal with a problem that's not the real problem. Because you can't confront the real problem. And so Miriam and Aaron go up to Moses and say, You act so high and mighty like the word of the Lord's coming to you. God's spoken through us too. And Moses' response is really nothing. The Hebrew says that he was very meek. But that word meek can also be translated um, depressed. And that's, Moses was, was not just the most meek man there was. He was depressed. His family was, that's your, supposed to be your core support. And that's what was destroying and, and attacking him and, and a source of bitterness. And instead of lashing back out, Moses just endured and took it. But God rose to his defense and set upon Miriam and Aaron a curse. And Miriam became white with leprosy. Then all of a sudden, Miriam and Aaron decided, well, Moses might have a little tighter role with the Almighty than we thought. Help, Moses, we're sorry. And Moses interceded on their behalf. And God healed. But God also sent Miriam out of camp for seven days in time out so she could think about what she did. I like that story. Healing through intercession. Then we get to the story Pastor David had this morning of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And this is a wonderful story. If you were there this morning, I don't want to repeat the whole story because there's no reason to. But I'll just sort of give it to you in a nutshell in case you missed Pastor David. There's a man who's uh, at the 
pool of Bethesda. It's by the sheep gate. He, that's where all of the blind and the lame and the paralyzed would lie. This man had been an invalid for 38 years and you get from the context it's because of some sin he committed. And as David said, that's not because all infirmity and, and sickness comes from sin uh, directly, but some does. And this man's did. And so Jesus sees him and says, do you want to be healed? And the sick man says, oh, wine, 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 wine. And Jesus says, stop your whining, pick up your mat and go. And the man does. And then the Pharisees, not the Pharisees, some, some, some extra pious Jews see the man carrying his little roll-up sleeping bag, his mat, on a Sabbath. They said, hey, what are you doing? You're not supposed to carry that on a Sabbath. And the man's response is, well, well hey, don't blame me. It's the guy who healed me, told me to do it. They said, well, who is he? Well, I don't know. Then later, the guy sees Jesus in the temple. Runs back to the Jews who wanted to know. He said, hey, I figured out who it was. Is that Jesus guy. That's the one you want. And so the Jews confront Jesus with it. And Jesus gives them the very clear explanation. Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I'm working. Then he continues to say, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. And he launches into something that we'll talk about in a minute. But first, we dealt with the healing on the Sabbath. And I would suggest to you, if you want to try and understand the Sabbath in the biblical terms in which we see it in the New Testament, then we need to see it as a question of priorities. Now, the Sabbath is a high priority. Make no bones about it. Scripture says it's a high priority. I put a number of scriptures up there for you. Exodus 31, 12 through 17. Exodus 35, 1 through 3. You see it over and over and over. If you look, for example, at Exodus 31, 12 through 17. Here's what the Lord says to Moses. The Lord says... You're to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Now think about priorities here. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. That you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. This is critical for our understanding. It's a sign between the Jews and the Lord throughout their generations that the Lord sanctifies them. So you'll keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. If someone profanes it, they shall be put to death. That's a pretty high priority. I mean, you steal from someone, you just get your hand chopped off or something. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. 
You think God's joking about it? I added the passage out of Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15 has quite the story. Starting in verse 32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to the congregation. They handcuffed him because it it had not been made clear what should be done. They placed him in custody. They tied him up. And the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. That's one of those little grenades I threw into your context Bible reading to get you a little uncomfortable that day. Those are the stories that make some people say, "Uh, that's a different God than Jesus. Those are the stories that make some people say, there's a problem with Scripture. Those are the kinds of stories that make some people say, uh, there's a reason we should be reading the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Those are the stories of the Scriptures that Jesus used in His Bible, because that was Jesus' Bible. Those are the stories that underscored the vitriol, uh, I'm, I'm big word, sorry, the vehemence, the severity of anger and concern that these Jews had. Because Jesus is telling some fella to carry his mat around on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not something to be taken lightly. The Sabbath is not simply a day of rest. It's a covenant. It's a sign. It's something that by honoring the people are saying, God is going to sanctify us and make us holy. And we show that by honoring Him and following All of His commandments, including this one. It's a ten commandment. It's one of the ten. It's important stuff. But Jesus is here speaking to priorities. And the Sabbath is up there. It is a huge priority. But the message we get from this story with Jesus... is one that says it's not the highest priority. That the alleviation of suffering trumps the Sabbath. Because Jesus goes a step further and says what we're looking at here are not man's priorities. We're looking at something bigger. We're looking at God's priorities. 
And when Jesus, I mean, if the purpose of the Sabbath is to establish and show that God sanctifies his people, then Jesus, when he's sanctifying his people on the Sabbath, is fulfilling the Sabbath, not violating it. When Jesus comes in and he heals, when Jesus comes in and he ministers, when Jesus comes in with God's priorities, with God's heart, then what Jesus is doing is he's, he's fulfilling the Sabbath. He is sanctifying. He's making whole. And that's the whole purpose of the Sabbath. Now you may be saying, okay, Lanier, then get back to that numbers story and show, show me the heart of God in that. I want to tell you two things about the numbers story that may not make it slide any easier with you. But these are the two things that I know and I can tell you. Number one, that man should not have been doing that with the sticks. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's just a gimme. You read the story, and it's not like he was out there helping somebody. We don't know the details. But the way it's written, it's very clear he's out there as a clear transgressor. He's out there flaunting what God has told him to do. He's out there with an attitude of, hey, nobody else is collecting sticks today. They're all doing that church thing. This is a good day for me to go out there and get the sticks. I'm going to get a jump on everybody. I will corner the stick market. They want a light of fire? Baby, they're coming to me. I am the timber king. Because I collected it. While they were all sitting around honoring the Lord. In other words, the man was, he didn't have a higher priority. This was not a time like David in the showbread. This was not a time where, where war was about. This was not a time where suffering needed to be alleviated. This was not a time where Jesus needed to be shown to be King of kings and Lord of the Sabbath. This is a man flaunting it before God. And God draws a very stern lesson for the people. He says, guys, this isn't a game. The life of Israel and how Israel will survive as a nation depends upon Israel taking God at his word and living faithfully to his commandments. And if there's anything we learn from the Old Testament, it's that the faithlessness of Israel caused so much more pain and suffering. We're in a tough world. We're in a fallen world. We're in a world where sometimes parents have to bury their children. And that's not right and that's not fair. And yet, as believers, we've got not only to, to, to couple that heart of Christ with deeds that are godly and caring and compassionate, but we need to do it also with a sternness that says, sin is destructive and bad and harmful. And so we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. And that's the best I can do with that for you. You may be able to do better on your own, but that's what I threw out there for you. Now, next, 
As John continues in John uh, uh, 5, 18 through 21, he talks about Jesus and the Father and the Son. Or, and, and he's really relating what Jesus specifically was saying. Jesus says, let me get it exactly right. Not only was Jesus breaking the Sabbath, but Jesus was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, let's look at the words together. I think sometimes we get them better if we look at them. The son, capital S, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the capital F father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also will the son give life to whom he will. Now, as we see that and consider that, if we go back to the PowerPoint, to me, I'm I'm trying to figure out a good way to illustrate that. And there's a mirror in the sense that Christ is the mirror of God, reflecting God. And I've used that example before, but I've never been really at peace with it because it doesn't get the depth of it. So I have the sun and the moon. The sun shines and the moon reflects the sun's light. But the moon is so much more dim than the sun that I don't really like that either. So this is my new stab at it. I've never tried this before. This illustration may fall flat on its face. But it's the best one I got today. He's like a jump drive. You get these jump drives. And you put on the jump drive files for the computer. You can put songs. You can put PowerPoints. You can put Word documents. You can put a program, a computer program. And you take it out of one computer and you plug it into the other one. And that program moves over and drives the new computer exactly the way you want it. Jesus on earth is saying, I've got the Father's programming. I'm here to do what He sent me to do. And not as some mirror, little fuzzy, hard to see copy. I got it exactly. I'm on code, man. Line by line. It's exactly what the Father has. And that's what Jesus is there to do. Now the people, the followers of Jesus, they were primed for this. They'd been reading their Old Testament. They knew the story in Daniel 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What's that story? Remember it? Yeah, the fiery furnace. And they get put into the fiery furnace. And the king who throws them in there because they wouldn't worship the king says, rev it up, make it even hotter. I want them to be toasted dead. And the king looks in the fire. He sees four, not three. Says, I thought we threw three in there. Well, we did throw three in there. Well, there's a fourth who looks like son of the gods. See, the people were primed for this. By the way, I love that story. 
Because God did not save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire. He saved them in the fire. Because we get that fire. Anyway, so, so the people were primed for this. They were primed for the idea that there would be one who would reflect the Father's will, who would be there to help. In various places in the New Testament, we see the disciples, we see demons acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God. This was not a foreign concept, and I put those readings in there so that we'd see them. And then I moved us to the, the epistle of Hebrews, or maybe even the sermon of Hebrews. Scholars debate. It's not really an epistle. It's almost a sermon. But the book of Hebrews is just phenomenal. It presents an elaborate tapestry, weaving Old Testament teachings into the life and ministry and theology of Jesus. And so it takes the, the warp and the woof and, and it just and it and it weaves together these. Here, let me give you an example. Hebrews 1, 1 through 5 weaves in Psalm 2, which then weaves into verses 6 through 9, weaving in Psalm 45. And then we go to Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, where they weave in Psalm 102, which brings up Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. And then you get to Psalm 110, which is very useful because Psalm 110 gets interrelated not only there, but later in Hebrews 5, 1 through 6 and 7, 1 through 28, which all works marvelously well with Genesis 14. Which is why a kind lady in our class accosted me in the hall this morning as I was walking into worship. And she said something to the effect of her fingers were shorter. She said she felt like she was back in Bible school doing Bible drills. Flipping back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I'm sorry. There ought to be a better way, but I couldn't find a better way. So that's the way we did it. So if we look at the Hebrews passages, and we don't have time for all of them, but I really want you to get a little bit of this. It's, it's fantastic. The writer of Hebrews writes the following. Let's see. Galatians and Ephesians. Oh, I had a cap there. Okay, so here we get the writer of Hebrews. And you get the warm-up. You get a hint of what's about to come in the way this is put together where the the writer begins, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The sun is a jump drive. That's a more modern translation I've decided as of today. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, the, the writer is starting us out here and he's saying, when you read the Old Testament, you are reading God speaking through the prophets to us about His Son, whom He now has spoken to us directly 
through by putting him here. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. You see the Son, you see the Father. It's exactly what Jesus was saying in John 5. You see the Son, you see the Father. And this is the Son who, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand, the right side, the side of power, sat at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. The name not in the sense of some magic word, but the name in the sense of his reputation, who he stood for, what he was, what he had done, and what he's able to do. The deeds of Jesus, his name, his who has a name like the name of Jesus. And, and we kind of get lost in that if we're thinking, well, I know Jesus, I know. No, I'm not talking about the, the label. That's a 21st century way of thinking. You got to think biblically, where if your name did not fit who you were and what you did, they'd change your name. Because name stands for your character. It stands for your, your actions. And who has actions as high as Jesus's? Who's done what our Lord has done? To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Yet we know that God said that of Jesus. We read it in the Gospels. Or who? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let God's angels worship him. Now, you'll see these are inset. You'll see these are inset because they come from things. This comes from Psalm 2. And so we've got Psalm 2 here. And the, 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 the writer is weaving this together. He's weaving it together. When he says he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let God's angels worship him. That's actually out of Deuteronomy. I didn't put that in the PowerPoint. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's Psalm 104. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness. You've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's Psalm 45. And then he jumps and he says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the works of your hands. This is Psalm 102. He keeps going. Which of the angels has he ever said? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's Psalm 110. And if you go back and you look at Psalm 110, 
you can go back. I mean, we've, we've inserted these psalms for you to read them, to see them. But you go back and you look at Psalm 110. It's a psalm that Jesus had quoted as well when he was confronting this Pharisees. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek from two Hebrew words means the king of righteousness. Or the king is righteous, Melech and Sedek. If you, the Melchizedek is mentioned three times in your Bible. In Genesis 14, in Psalm 110, and in the book of Hebrews. Especially chapters 5 and 7. And I've put a section in your handout that's well worth reading because it is profound how Melchizedek represents a foreshadowing of Jesus. We don't know his heritage. We don't know his lineage. We don't know Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem. Salem means peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. Melchizedek, Abraham comes to Melchizedek and offers him a tithe, a tenth of what Abraham just won in battle. And they share bread and wine, the elements of the Eucharist. Melchizedek is a priest of God most high, a term used for Jesus as son of God most high. So, I mean, the, 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 the ramifications are profound. It's just the intricacies. I like to think what the writer of Hebrews was doing was putting together his own context Bible. He just didn't do the whole thing. But he's integrating into the story of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, the Old Testament prophecies that, that give form and substance and meaning. One day, I would love to write a book on the old, the, the way Old Testament prophecy is so confirming of, of faith. I mean, one answer that people, you, you see these prophecies that are just so vividly fulfilled in the life of Christ and the, the, the doctrine of Jesus. And it's so clear that you've got a couple of choices. You can either acknowledge the hand of God in this, or you can say, man, some people got really creative and took the Old Testament and fashioned this entire existence about this Jesus guy to make it fit all that stuff. The only problem with that is, whoever did that was living at a time where you didn't just go buy your Bibles The Old Testament existed in a bunch of scrolls that are at synagogues. That these fishermen that are following Jesus aren't just going to have ready access to. 
in the Judean hills. Too quickly, within a decade, under fierce persecution by the Jewish authorities, put together this elaborate gospel story. And someone might say, well, it must have been Brother Paul who did it because he was clearly trained. No. Paul doesn't write the Gospels. In fact, the Pauline scholars, a bunch of them say that Paul doesn't even jive well with the Gospels. I disagree. A bunch of Pauline scholars disagree. But there's a whole camp of people who think that. I'm just saying, it's pretty profound and it's pretty cool the way it all links up. So anyway, I didn't cover everything, but that's your coverage for this week. And with that, let's go to Dale, points for home. Point for home number one. I want to be an intercessor. I want there, I want to intercede on behalf of people before our Lord. I try really, really hard at this point in my life to move in that. I don't know why, but but for the last year and a half, God's really put that on my heart. To seek Him on behalf of those who, who are in need. And I'll reiterate to you what I do often. If you've got a prayer request that I can help you with and pray about, I, I would be honored to get to pray with you. And I am glad to to share my email address. This is probably crazy. Yeah, we don't want it on the web. I am proud to share my email address with you after class. Or you can email me through mark at biblical literacy. No, I don't have that. All right, I will share my email address with you after class. I would be honored to confidentially pray for you because it's important. And I want you to not just think of it in terms of, okay, I need someone praying for this. But I want you to be thinking, who do I need to be praying for? And don't forget, send yourself an email right now. Got to remember to start an intercessory prayer list. And write it down and put it somewhere where every day you see it. So that you can intercede on behalf of those that God puts on your heart to pray for. Next, I want God's priorities in my life. I don't want to be the idiot out there collecting sticks. I want to be the one who's seeking God's way of trying to help those who are hurting. Who's trying to do the right thing. Who's trying to honor God. It's my priorities. I want those priorities. And then last but not least, I want the jump drive of God's will. I want Jesus Christ to to find expression in my life. I've got energy today. I have calories to spare. I have energy to be burned today. I've got some things I have to do. But I want everything that I do to be something that brings glory to God and is within His will. And if it's not, I don't want to do it. I want, we all have limited days on this earth. And I want each one to count for the Lord and His kingdom. And I hope you'll join me in that. Lord, would you please bless my friends. 
And thank you so much for the honor of getting to share your word, getting to read your word, getting to discuss your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will will reach deep within us and, and stir up within us a desire to pray for those in need, a desire to serve you in all that we do with your priorities, finding expression in all that we are. We pray through the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the God Most High, at your right hand, our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Redeemer, and our Friend.